Indeed, SAFM, and this is SFM Literature. We're talking about words and books and texts, which is the title of our next feature. Text next, and we're talking a little bit about learning, and I guess there are many ways of learning, of uh, sourcing information and knowledge, especially these days. But one of them these days is called open access. Well, to explore exactly what this really means, we have in the studio Assistant Professor Laura Chenovich, and uh, to explore, and she is the uh, she's with the Centre for Higher Education Development at the University of Cape Town, and she's currently working on Open UCT, which simply put, I think, is designed to make uh, freely available as many of, as possible of UCT's research, teaching, and community-focused scholarly resources to those with internet access. Sure. Well, we try and find out exactly what all that means, and the, and the idea also being to engage with a higher education openness agenda from the perspective of the global south. Hi, Laura. Nice to have you with us. Thanks very much. Um, Laura, just explain to us. Let's start with open access. I mean, it's 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 a new phrase. Just explain, define it for us. Right. Open access is about the user having free access to online content. So. It's uh, designed to, especially in the, in the space where public funds are involved, its logic is that the public has paid for the creation of those resources, whether they're teaching resources or research resources, and that everyone is entitled to have access to those resources freely. That's really what it is in short. Within the open access community, of course, there's a lot of disagreeing about the specifics. But in brief, it's about free legal access for users. And, of course, the legal part is very important because open access materials are available with um, open licenses. And so a lot of the work is actually about explaining new forms of copyright that involve open licenses. How things have changed. I mean, back in the day, if you photocopied a book, you'd be hung, drawn and quartered. And, and now here we are offering it to the world online and free. I suppose the, the first question is, the public have paid for it, have they? Well, I think in a public university, and we're talking yeah. about public universities, assuming that public universities are paid for with taxpayers' money, then yes, they have. And the ironic situation is that um, it's come about that academics have given their work and their copyright to commercial publishers, and then they have to buy it back. So the same academics are having to buy it back which is quite bizarre, um, especially as they often the people who do the work of creating the research and the peer review, etc. But also it does mean that people outside of universities simply can't afford access yes. to those resources because they are extortionately expensive. And uh, technology has really made it possible to share freely and easily. Um, you were talking about photocopying. Fo photocopying is a really good example of how things have changed. Mm. So... In the, in the paper world, if, if I share a book with you, either you have the book or I have the book. But in the technology world, if I share a file with you, you have the file and I have the mm. file. So sharing becomes multiplying, not taking away. Yes. And so the open access movement acknowledges the possibilities of technology and wants to use them for uh, the public good. Yes, I mean, increasingly things are available on the net and increasingly things are available for free one way or another. And I think somebody has got to pay somewhere along the line because 
if if one were to sort of project the idea of open access way into the future, there won't be any more universities that you know with sort of Ivy covered universities because everybody will have to get everything online. This needs to be kept in harness somehow. Um, I think you know, you're talking about the rise of these open courses now rather mm. than open access to research. Am I right? Uh, okay, just you so, go for that. Okay, so what's happening in the in the open learning space? is something called MOOCs, which is Massive Open Online Courses. And they've really come to the fore recently when big universities, famous, uh, the, the, the Ivy League universities, the Harvards and the MITs, have put online for free some of their courses. And this means that people anywhere in the world can do those courses for free. And that's, I think, where this, this comment of yours about the threat to universities mm. comes from. Um, it's, it's a really interesting issue, and I think it's been massively overhyped. Um, so on the one hand, the, one of the first people who uh, pronounced that MOOCs were going to solve the problems of this world made the, um, un- well, the fortunate or unfortunate, I think unfortunate example of the University of Johannesburg um, and said that this would solve South Africa's higher education problems. And I think that's one of those very grand statements that would not be the case because they are making their content free, but they're not actually offering you access to Harvard. And, in fact, their own students at those universities don't do these courses, and you don't get certification from those universities. Having said that, of course, having access to some of that content might very well be extremely useful. So if, they, if a MOOC doesn't give you uh, any sort of certification, uh, what is the value in doing them? Well... I mean, that, uh, forgive me for asking such a... Well, I think that, you know, they've been around for a while now, and so there's, there's some examination of who does them and why. Um, they have very, very low completion rates. So... Okay they're finding that something like you might have 160,000 people around the world doing them but something like 5% actually finish Um, and those people who finish often get a a certificate of completion which is not meaningless it's not a Harvard credit but it's a certificate of completion but people do these things for a lot of different reasons they do them for interest Um, they do them as a kind of form of continuing education yeah lifelong learning Um, exactly it's lifelong learning and upgrading qualifications and in some cases they're getting access to fantastic lecturers the low completion rates that's an interesting one because my next question was going to be uh, you know one of the things about being at university is you have access to supervisors support systems uh, your peer groups all sorts of uh, uh, groups of people that that are there that make you feel like you're part of something and when you're doing it all by yourself uh, in your lonely little garret you might you might very well just think what am I doing this for exactly so so there's so it's questionable how successful MOOCs are well I think you've put your finger exactly on the issue which is about mediation and scaffolding and teaching actually and so the value is always going to be in the community that's built, in the mediation that the lecturers and the tutors provide. And, of course, that's what costs money. Once you've developed the content, it's not that expensive to put online. As I was saying, in the online space is actually relatively cheap. But designing it, um, creating communities and so on, that's where the expense actually comes. And what the, uh, some of these MOOCs are starting to do is they're offering what they call signature tracks, which is actually the supported track which you do pay for. Just explain that. So 
Um, you can have free access to the MOOC, anybody. You mm. and I can sign up. I've signed up for one just to see what it's like. Um, but if you want someone to answer your questions, somebody to tutor you, in other words, some more of that mediation, then you will pay for the signature track on the MOOC. Okay, so somebody is going to be then get signed up to look after you. And how do they get paid? Well, they will, at the moment, it's, it's quite an experimental space. And if you look at who's funding MOOCs, it's a range of people. For some venture capitalists, it's a new opportunity in um, the higher education space, and they're not actually quite sure yet. So there's a lot of funding going into it. But the actual model for how this is going to work and how it's going to make money, let alone cover its costs, is not yet clear. Just coming back to the whole issue of access and the Internet and who's out there, you know, it's a whole, one has in some ways access to the whole world. You certainly have access to information about people. You can Google people, and if you're Googling somebody with a name like yours, you might not find too many with a name like yours, but you may find a whole bunch of Nancy Richards, it's millions of them. Exactly. Um, so... You know, there's this issue of facelessness, uh, of, uh, an issue of uh, trust, an issue of authenticity, of sort of human flesh and blood not really being quite there. Uh, maybe we're getting in, into sort of social issues, but it is something to be considered, isn't it? Absolutely. And uh, you, once again, you've put your finger on something really important because actually everyone has a digital online presence. In fact, everyone has a digital footprint. And... People who think that searching for their names are, is some kind of vanity, that's not correct. Everyone ought to be keeping an eye on their digital footprint because it's there and it's happening. And it's sometimes called the digital shadow because it's not necessarily what you want. It's what someone else has tagged you. It's when you've been in some kind of forum and you didn't know that this was actually available online. And actually, I think part of a kind of... One's identity and professional identity is actually to keep an eye on one's online footprint and to take control of it. So it becomes a new kind of a, a literacy that all of us need to have. And in the academic world, I would imagine it's quite important that you keep an eye on it because you're, as an academic, you need to keep your credibility needs to be absolutely pristine and polished. Yeah, and for students. Mm -hmm. So students, of course, don't realise that... If they put my wonderful drunken night out up on Facebook and it's tagged, that if they're interviewed for an internship, we can find that. And, of course, increasingly employers and academics and everyone, we do. We do look in advance to see what we can find out about people. We're almost sort of imprisoned by our own freedom in some ways, if that makes sense. But there were two threads of open access, and one is the MOOCs, which is a massive open online courses, and the other area is research, right. and that is very much open. Right. Just explain how that works. The, the research really has started in the, the journal space. So traditionally academics publish in journals, and traditionally those journals are owned by other um, societies, professional societies, or they're owned by commercial publishers. And as I was saying earlier, um, in the print era, the, the work that the publishers did was absolutely critical, especially around dissemination. Um, but the work has always been done by the academics. The process of peer review is done for free by academics. Uh, in the digital era, that whole dissemination part of the work simply doesn't need to doing anymore. Increasingly, journals are only online. 
So in the old days, getting print journals from A to B and across countries was a really complicated and expensive process. Whereas now, creating files is almost cost almost nothing, and making them available and downloading them cost almost nothing. So the whole the model has really changed, but the financial model still is premised on the the print era model. You're listening to SFM Literature. In our text feature, we're talking to Assistant Professor Laura Chenowicz, and she's Associate Professor at the Centre for Higher Education Development, and uh, she's also uh, Director at the Open UCT. Uh, I'm going to give you the website in just a minute, but I thought if you'd like to give us a call, maybe you're an academic or maybe you're uh, in some way involved in the universities, give us a call and tell us what you think. The number is 0892 102010. Also thinking that, you know, to be published, to have your paper, your work, your thesis, whatever it may be, published, used to be quite a sort of prestigious thing, um, you know, so you had your published paper physically in your hands. And now it's sort of out there and it's free. You know, how, where, where does the prestigiousness come in there? The prestigiousness is still there. Mm. So one of the myths about open access journals is that they are somehow without that peer review process and they are somehow less prestigious and that's actually inaccurate. So to get published still requires that you do rigorous and solid research. Um, in fact, open access is advantageous to academics because it means more people are able to see and read and cite and use their work and that's actually what academics do and want. I don't think academics are generally in it for the money. So open access increases the possibility of citations and use. And we're doing more and more work to show how that happens. Uh, This is a little bit of a deviation, or at least a little bit of a detour, but I'm just thinking about the word academic. Um, You can read an academic piece of writing, and and it's written in a certain way. Sometimes, you know, you know that it's an academic piece of writing. It can give it a measure of inaccessibility, because it's hard for people who haven't learnt that sort of style. And I'm thinking that, on the other hand, we're talking about Facebook and tweeting, and, you know, which is a very, it's completely the the other side of the coin, isn't it? Is there any conflict there? Well, um, I think the general perception is that Twitter and tweeting is for the frivolous. And, in fact, it's used extensively for professional work and for academic work. And certainly in my own work, it's the main way that I keep up with what's going on in the changing technology and educational technology and academic space. And it's been shown that people who use Twitter to discuss and share information about new publications, about events, and so on, definitely get more exposure. Mm-hmm. Is it a way, perhaps, of, of removing the, the academia or the academic speak, uh, removing all that and making it a little bit more accessible, even more accessible? One, one would certainly hope so. Yeah. yeah. So who is using MOOCs? I love this expression, <laughs> MOOCs. Um, who here in South Africa is finding access? Is it getting to where perhaps it needs to be getting the people who don't have access, they've got internet access, but they're not able to get into universities. Is it helping them? Um, we don't know exactly because the, the main MOOC providers in the States are not that keen to tell us who, who their students are. So we have got a sense that oh, some... Oh, are the MOOCs all coming from the States? They are. Oh, they okay. are. Not only, but from Europe. I mean, this is the interesting mm. thing is that we haven't developed any of our own MOOCs yet. Should we not be? I think we should. I think we should. Absolutely. Um, but the other thing about open resources, and it's not only about MOOCs, is that people don't know about them. So you have this funny situation where people use 
resources and content that they find online, and they know that it probably isn't kosher. And so they they will say, I would have liked to have attributed it for, but I, I got it from a, a pirate site, or I got it from someone else, but I feel bad because I should have attributed the author. And they don't know that actually there are loads and loads and loads of legally open places to go. And the only requirement from something that's been made legally open is that, that you attribute. In other words, an open license is a... Um, a form of copyright that gives license to people to use it under various conditions. And so I think what we need to be doing a lot more of is educating people about where to go for open licensing and open license resources of all types, images, cartoons, music, um, textbooks, you name it. Let me give out the website right now. I think it's, uh, it's http colon forward slash forward slash open UCT uct.ac.za is that right so it's openuct.uct.ac.za probably the most important thing here in South Africa is that we we are creating our own material because if it's coming from America or Europe I mean there are certain things that will be universally knowledgeable but I mean just talking to Novuyo about her book about Zimbabwe you know there's so much that belongs here in South Africa that is that we are you know that we don't celebrate sufficiently if you were able to wave a magic wand and you were you to start up some MOOCs yourself, what would they be? Where would you be focusing? I think one would want to focus on the work that is being done locally that is, that is unique, that is of great interest, and, and there's a lot of that. Um, you'd want to look at some of the, the, the natural world. Um, you'd want to look at some of the work around uh, that, that the SKA work that people are being involved in active in. You'd want to look at some of the literature. Um, and of course some of that is already openly available. There's some lovely innovative examples. For example, I don't know if you've come across something called Funza. Yes, yes, yes. yes. yes it's written about it here. Yeah. Right, and um, that is literature available on mobile phones to teenagers and I believe they have something like 150,000 subscribers of young people who just can't day, wait for the next chapter. They can't yeah. wait for the next chapter, and it's freely available online every day, and it's growing literature, and mm. it's a wonderful thing, and that's very local. Yeah, it very much is uh, something that we're interested in, because I think it is all about getting knowledge and learning and, and information out there. So um, here in South Africa, are we, how are we rating ourselves with open access compared to other countries in the world? I mean, we always look to the States or look to Europe or look to China, you know, the East, to see how well they're doing. Are they doing very well? Have, have we, can we sort of walk in their, in their footsteps and say, mm, these are the mistakes we, they made, we can do better? We're lagging far behind, okay. um, which is going to actually be increasingly disadvantageous for us. And the reason I say that is because in the last year, a number of countries in Europe and North America and the EU itself have mandated in the research space, not in the teaching space, that all research um, funded by the research councils, the government, etc., must be available open access. And what that means is that um, sometimes the data as well, but certainly the outputs, will have to be made freely available online. And that is going to hugely disadvantage us because we know, for example, that people search for resources using Google. And if we are not making our content of all kinds available freely online, then it will never be found. 
Because we're going to have a flood from the, the global yeah, north. And yeah. so we don't have anything like that in the policy space in South Africa. It feels like there's a lot more work to be done here, a lot more uh, putting the word out there. UCT, you've got open UCT, UCT, dot UCT. Um, other universities, or is there an opportunity for sort of partnership between yourselves and all the other big universities? Or uh, all the other universities? I would like to think so. And I'm pleased to say that we are getting requests from... So, for example, on, on Tuesday, I will be in Johannesburg, and the Department of Higher Education and Training is holding a workshop on open learning, and that's a really encouraging sign. Um, but I am concerned that we haven't heard from the, the research funders, from the National Research Foundation and so on, any suggestion of moves towards open access policies that would make the research funded um, openly available in the same way as the North, and we do have a lot more work to do. There are other universities who've been really doing good work in, in this area, um, Stellenbosch, Pretoria, Rhodes, it's, but it's uneven. Yeah. I suppose perhaps it'll be a matter of time before it gets down to schools. So much be sort of open access university level, but open access to schools, but maybe that's... It's already happening. Is it already happening? Yes. Well, that's going to have to be a conversation for another <laughs> day, Laura, because we are out of time. But I'm going to give your, um, your website once again, because I'm sure it would have piqued a lot of people's interest. Professor uh, Laura Chenovich, uh, she's Associate Professor at the Centre for Higher Education Development and Director at the University of Cape Town, talking about open access. And once again, if you'd like to check the site, it's openuct uct.ac.za and I will give you those details once again right at the end of the programme. Thanks Laura, thank you very much for joining us. It's uh, SFM and less SFM literature you're listening to and right now it's time for the news at 2 o'clock with Sam Marshall.